The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is a man who has a Twitter picture with a very large, uh, what looks like a shark, given the size of it, uh, Porter Stansbury. Uh, Porter, introduce yourself to the audience. I know you've been uh, at this for a long time, but some people may not be familiar with your name. Um, who are you? What's your background? you get involved in uh, financial research, in publishing, in markets, and what are you doing currently? Well, Michael, first, thanks for having me. I've been a fan of your Twitter thread ever since I found it. Uh, maybe six months ago. I'm I'm very late to the Twitter world, but uh, you're one of the, my uh, daily reads, and I'm flattered you invited me to join you. For anyone who's never heard of me, I I have been a leading voice in the independent financial research space for about 25 years. Uh, my my first company that I founded in 1999 was known as Stansbury Research, and it morphed and became something called MarketWise which uh, went through a $3 billion NASDAQ IPO listing in July of 21. And at that time, I retired uh, and spent about uh, two years doing nothing but um, fishing around the world and enjoying myself. And of course, like a lot of people, retirement wasn't uh, all it was cracked up to be. So I have come back to the world of financial publishing and I launched a new business called Porter & Company. I hope you guys will check it out. And my newest topic that I've been working on is really trying to help people understand and get their minds around why property and casualty insurance is such a great investment for passive common stock investors. And that's what I'm here to talk with you about today. All right, so we're definitely going to get into that. Uh, I want to hear your um, your thoughts on sort of the evolution of being an independent uh, researcher and how important it is to get sort of major tail events right to building a brand and building a business. I mean, I've, I've done the Stansbury yeah. podcast myself, and you know, I know you had some tremendous calls in the past. Um, talk about sort of the challenges of, of building a media entity uh, in the past and, and today. Great question, of course. First of all, let me just say that I don't think that financial publishing is an appropriate content segment to be a media company. Uh, to be a media company, you need lots of eyeballs and you need to say things that are not controversial so that you don't upset your advertisers. There is no way you can do a good job for your subscribers if you follow those, those attributes. To do a good job for your subscribers, you must be contrarian. You must be against the grain. You must say things that are upsetting to the powers that be. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to beat the markets. You're not going to be able to help your clients avoid catastrophes. 
And as a great example of that, I would urge everybody to get on Google and go back and find my letters from the chairman of General Motors. I started writing these letters in late 2005, early 2006. And every quarter that GM would come out with a press release about their quarterly earnings, I would write a letter from the chairman of General Motors saying exactly what the company should have been telling investors, but wasn't. And that was that there was no way they were ever going to be able to afford their pension obligations or their existing debts. And that in in 19 out of the last 20 years, in fact, they had to borrow money to pay interest on their existing debts. They couldn't make any money selling cars. And the only way they were able to make any money at all was through financing, mostly through subprime mortgages. And all of that was destined to come to a very bad end that would leave shareholders with nothing. And I wrote this every quarter until GM, of course, did go bankrupt in uh, late 2008, early 2009. And why was was an individual newsletter writer living in Baltimore, miles away from the centers of financial power and and information flows, with a handful of of assistants helping me, why were we able to figure this out when hedge funds couldn't, when mutual funds couldn't? When some of the best value investors in the world couldn't, you might remember Southeastern Capital Management, which was at the time a major value shop, had a huge position in General Motors. Ironically enough, coming out of bankruptcy, Buffett bought a huge slug of of General Motors, which has gone precisely nowhere. Went public again at 35 and and, and 2010, and it's still at 35. So how how is it that a guy like me, who really, of course, is basically a nobody and a know-nothing, how did I get that so right? And the answer, of course, is the SEC filings. Everyone has access to the information. It's all right there in the Bloomberg or in the filings. But GM and, and their, their distributors, their, um, their dealers, were the largest buyers of advertising in the United States. There wasn't anybody in the media business who could legitimately criticize General Motors without losing a huge slug of their income. But what about the investment banks? Well, GM's going bankrupt because they're borrowing too much money. But every time they borrow a dollar, Wall Street's getting seven cents. So GM was some of the largest payers of fees in the history of Wall Street. They're not going to say anything about the common stockholders going broke. So that's why I don't think that financial publishing is a good fit for the media business. Look at the trouble Jim Cramer has. Now, a lot of people like to diss on Jim Cramer, and I'm certainly not going to refrain from criticizing him when he makes a call that I don't agree with. But who, who among us could go on television for an hour or three every day and talk nonstop about securities while pleasing your advertisers and not end up saying something stupid. And, and, and so I mean, that's a very, very tough I'm still, gift. I'm saying because it's like, they put that, that tweet a while back saying, unpopular opinion, Jim Cramer is actually very skilled. And people went on me for saying that. And what I was really addressing is exactly that point. Like, it's extremely hard. There's a lot of conflicts to your point about the advertisers. And not, uh, yeah, for all the people that criticize Cramer about being right or wrong, the reality is, it's not easy to always be on when you have a camera on you and we have people reading your stuff. His knowledge of the security market is encyclopedic and what, and what he does every day is amazing, but it's a bad fit for investors. You know, it's, it's way better, way better to have a small group of people that you're working for that are, that are paying you for your willingness to be contrarian, for your willingness to take risks and say things that, you know, may end up being wrong. If you read all my newsletters over the past 25 years, you're going to find lots of times I got it wrong. I'd say most famously, I did not appreciate how powerful the iPhone would be, you know, and I thought that buying Nokia in 2006, 2007 was a good idea. So sure, I've made lots of bad calls. 
anyone who writes about securities every month is going to make a bad call. Um, the question, of course, is how you limit your risk, how you cut your losses, and how you let your winners run. And, of course, what your overall track record is. And my overall audited track record is about 15% a year for 25 years, which is pretty damn good. So I, I've done a great job serving my subscribers, and um, I, I take a lot of pleasure in doing so. And the result has been I've had, uh, you know, if not the largest independent, independent financial advisor in the world, certainly one of them, I think at our peak, market-wise, had a million paying subscribers and about 15 million free daily readers. So we were definitely reaching subscribers and reaching investors, but we weren't doing so as a media company. We weren't taking money for advertising. We were taking money from subscribers and serving those people as individuals. On that that point about you have to be contrarian and, and kind of go against the grain, is it is it fair to say it's a lot easier to be contrarian from the negative standpoint, from the left tail side, as opposed to the right tail? No, actually, I don't. I think it takes just as much guts to buy an expensive stock that you think is going to outgrow its its multiple as it does to take on a popular stock that that you think you know doesn't deserve its multiple but i would tell you that for me i i really don't like shorting stocks and i i've only done so in the past where i was convinced there was clear evidence of fraud or my favor of course was just a balance sheet that would sink anybody there is no way it was impossible for general motors to not go bankrupt so being short a situation like that is a lot more comfortable to me than than trying to say short Tesla because of its multiple. I I don't I don't like shorting in those situations. It's awfully hard to win as a short seller because we exist in a world of paper money where credit and money is constantly expanding. And that's like a that's like a gravity that you're not going to beat if you're shorted. Yeah, and I often rant against uh, shorting. People think that if you're negative on a stock or a market, that means, oh, just take a directional bet on it and short it. And yeah, I always go back to past matters more with prediction. You can be bearish and just not play it. Much wiser. It's awfully hard to make money when you got to pay to borrow. Yeah, no, exactly right. All right. And then you you, you put out a uh, a documentary, which uh, got a hell of a lot of views, um, End of America, uh, which I think a lot of people uh, would probably agree with. Although, let's face it, the idea of the end of America uh, has been a theme for a long time. Um, what were some of the things that um, that that were in that documentary that you find uh, resonated with people watching it? We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Well, that documentary was really about what the impact on civil society would be over time because of our decision in 2010 to begin to monetize treasury debt and, of course, mortgage debt as well in order to save the banking system. And historically, when you look at societies that choose to do that, there are big social ramifications that go beyond the economic problems. Uh, So among the things that are very common in societies that are monetizing their debts is huge growth in prostitution. Well, what would printing money have to do with people's you know, public virtues or morals. It's really hard to explain. But when you 
when you alter the way that we measure and account for success and failure in our society, it leads people to do things that are far more desperate than they would otherwise do. It leads to a loosening of virtue across the whole society. And so look at the rise of, for example, OnlyFans. Now, you know, we can, we can, I'm not talking about whether or not that's something that's good or bad for our society, but certainly something new that you have now perhaps hundreds of thousands of college women in, involved in some kind of prostitution. That's very new to our society. And likewise, not just prostitution, but you also see a huge rise in gambling. And look at how our society has changed uh, sort of its, its norms around gambling. I remember 25 years ago, it was controversial that states were beginning lotteries. Now, of course, you have gambling legal on people's cell phones. And I, I think in basically every state in the nation, you can make sports bets, you can make I don't even know how many different kinds of bets there are these days because of all the different fantasy leagues and these things. But, the, but there's been a huge growth in the amount of capital that's involved in, in gambling. And that, again, I guess we could talk about whether or not that's good, that, that's good for our society. I certainly believe in the freedom you, every sovereign individual should have to engage in gambling if they choose to. But I don't think for, on the whole it's good for society. Uh, same thing I would say about OnlyFans and prostitution in general. It's Of course, everyone should have the sovereign right to their own body, but it's not good for society that people see that as a viable option or see it as necessary. So the, the End of America documentary was about how these social changes were going to corrupt our institutions and that how they would ultimately lead to a decline in civil society and how that would lead to things like the government restricting our freedoms in ways that, that really we began to see only during COVID. Um, but also I predicted things like America would lose its AAA rating, which it did, and, and, how, um, and how these things, the decline of, of civil society and the rise of authoritarian government would likely change everything about America, the way we work, the way we vacation, the way we travel. And I think all that's occurred in our society, and I'm not happy about it, but I think it wasn't I don't, I don't think that what happened during COVID would have happened absent our decision back in 2010 to begin to monetize our debts. And of course, the extreme increase in that monetization process that happened over the last decade. We've become a society that believes that all of our problems can be solved with authoritarian government solutions. And we have forgotten about the virtue of freedom and the virtue of having uh, everybody experiment with different solutions that are right for them to discover the right path. It, it, even if we had just allowed the states to determine what the COVID response should have been, we would have discovered very, very quickly that Florida's approach was the best, which is that it didn't really matter what else you did with masks and vaccine and et cetera. An airborne virus is going to spread and we're going to have to deal with it. No sense in also wrecking our economy. So I think that that, that, that documentary, unfortunately, was prophetic, and a lot of the investment advice that was in it was excellent. Um, I think probably my very best call in that documentary was reminding people that the growth in our energy industry was going to be profound, and things like the Texas Pacific Land Trust would be an excellent way to protect yourself from the inevitable inflation that was going to occur with all of those monetiz monetization policies. That stock has just been an absolute barn burner. When we when we recommended it in that documentary, I think it was around $25. <laughs> so what, what a moonshot. Yeah, and actually, the, um, it's interesting because against that energy backdrop, uh, there's been the, the pull of ESG and you know, money that's uh, 
been starved from the sector and the industry. Last year was obviously really phenomenal for the entire sector. Uh, short term this year, not so much. All the momentum, all the FOMO has gone into AI and tech. But it sounds to me like you think there's still uh, a hell of a lot more room for energy to be a leader. Uh, absolutely, Michael. I was in uh, Qatar um, yesterday or the day before. It's, it's hard when you do that kind of travel to know which day it is. But I spent a couple of days in Qatar this week. If you go back into the um, World Bank or the CIA stat book and look at how much Qatar's economy has grown in the last 25 years since they began exporting LNG, it's simply astounding. <laughs> they, you know, they've gone from one of the poorest countries in the world on a per capita GDP basis to the absolute wealthiest. They now have $3 million per citizen in their sovereign wealth fund. And downtown uh, Doha must have 50 buildings that are over 50 stories tall, all of which have been built in the last decade. I mean, it's, it's an amazing explosion of wealth. And guess what? America exports more LNG than they do. And they're going to double, Qatar is going to double their LNG export capacity over the next decade. And America's will probably grow by even more, or maybe, you know, maybe 150%. And the, the amount of wealth that's going to generate for our economy is meaningful, even to an economy of our size. And that's just LNG. Of course, we're also exporting all kinds of refined crude products, and even crude itself. The, the, the Marcellus Shale is, you know, the, the geologists argue about how much energy is inside it. But uh, my position on that is it's the world's largest energy reservoir of any kind. And I'm, I'm willing to be wrong about that, but so far, I'm certainly winning that bet. It's gone from something like an estimated um, 100 trillion cubic feet of gas total reserves, and this is just in the last decade, to five times that much. And why do the reserve estimates keep increasing? Well, it's because the technology for finding gas keeps, keeps increasing. And so the more, the more insight we have into the reservoir, the more gas we're finding. And uh, I think you probably know that I've written a lot about EQT. And uh, that story is just tremendous. Two, or actually rather three brothers and, and the Rice family started a small family energy company in 2007. They grew it through acquisition in the Marcellus. And then during COVID, when, <clears throat> when uh, Chevron wanted out of the field, they were able to buy... $8 billion worth of gas reservoirs for 800 million bucks, which was the energy, acquisi the energy acquisition of the, of the decade, if not the century. And so they turned their small family energy company, which was called Rice Energy, they merged it with EQT, and they did this deal with Chevron to become the largest producer of natural gas in the United States. Just an incredible story. And with the energy reserves they have in the Marcellus, they're now uh, pursuing pipeline construction and LNG construction on the East Coast that would fundamentally change the supply dynamics for all of Europe. So I think there's a great opportunity there for investors. And that company is trading out of free cash flow yields of about 20%, so about five years worth of cash flow. And they've got, you know, whatever, 25 years worth of reserves at current production. And they keep, of course, proving more reserves. So just a, that's a really good energy story for folks who, like me, are bullish on fossil fuels. <laughs> I recognize that being bullish on fossil fuels is, is, is definitely contrarian these days, which, which I just find very ironic. 
There, if you know anything about energy economics, you know that wind and solar will never replace fossil fuels, that every new energy source only adds to the total energy mix. It never, energy never leaves the field um, because energy is one of these kinds of economic, one of these kinds of economic assets that are extremely elastic in, in supply and demand. The cheaper energy gets, the more people are going to use it, and they're never going to stop using it. So uh, I, I just think that it's really foolish for people to talk about peak fossil fuel demand. It's just grossly ignorant. It's ironic. Um, in the mid-2000s, I was vehement that the idea of peak oil, <clears throat> that it was the, that was the peak supply back then, you might remember. People were saying we're going to run out of oil. I just thought that was absolute lunacy. I, I have I have good contacts and friends in the oil and gas industry in Texas, and I knew for sure that they were pioneering huge new fields like the Barnett Shale. And the idea that we're running out of gas or oil was just lunacy. In fact, the whole the entire history of energy production, the problem has always been too much supply. Always, you know, they, they didn't invent OPEC because of peak oil. They didn't invent the West Texas Railroad Commission because of peak oil. They had to invent these cartels because there's always too much supply. That's always the problem in oil and gas, always. And so that these, these myth makers had convinced people of the quote unquote twilight in the desert <laughs> and the nonsense that we were going to run out of oil. And they had convinced people to the point where we went and fought in a, a war in Iraq to get more oil reserves. I mean, that is just complete lunacy. You know, meanwhile, the production of hydrocarbons in Texas was booming. It's, it's, I think that's just one of the great, one of the greatest mass delusions in history, kind of like the COVID mass delusion we saw recently. But anyways, I just think it's funny that in my history of covering the oil and gas industry, I've had to debunk both peak oil and then peak oil demand, both of which are fallacies. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. All right, so we talk about energy, but that's not uh, that's not God's perfect investment, uh, which is the name of the Twitter space. Um, so I, I want to get into uh, the main topic area, which you alluded to, which is insurance, which you tend to not hear too much people, too many people talk about, um, especially when everybody's obsessed with chat GPT replacing every single part of the world, uh, which we can joke about and get into. But lay out, lay out the thesis for you. First of all, why do you love the insurance uh, industry as much as you do? And and talk about the origins of framing it from the standpoint of it being God's perfect investment. Yeah, I, I figure this is going to be controversial. And I, I, I'd like to disclaim, as I do in the documentary, that, of course, I don't know for a fact if property and casualty insurance was created by God. It did begin in the, in the Catholic Church. Is that breaking? And it was, I, feel like, I feel like I should do like breaking, you know. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just true. Uh, You know, there was a, there was a Catholic nun who in the 1200s began these mutual aid societies that were the forerunners of property and casualty insurance. And it's true that those, um, that those forms of finance were the earliest forms of, of modern finance. And they were really turned into such by later by the, 
English church. And that's why Lloyd's is in London, because uh, all of these things were pioneered by, uh, by the Anglican church. Now, the, that's, that's a, of course, a historical fact. So that's not that controversial. What I'm going to say next probably will be more controversial to you. And I hope that there's some people who are listening will identify with this. I am very fascinated by the way things organically are created and developed through um, free markets and through human culture. I'll just give you one real simple example. The English language is the most expressive language that humans have ever created. There's more, there are more words in English by a huge factor than in any other ma- major language. And that allows people speaking English to be more precise with their language and, and, and able to say more with fewer words because the words themselves have been perfected. And did that happen because of God? You know, we can talk about that. I don't know. God doesn't whisper in my ear. But it is really interesting that the human culture that has had the biggest role in the Enlightenment and in pioneering the idea of individual sovereignty has also, at the same time, developed the best language. I think those two things go hand in hand, and I think they're very important for all of humanity, not just for, you know, Northwest Europeans or English speakers. Likewise, you can, I I would make the argument that nothing in the modern world is, is possible without property and casualty insurance. There's a reason why, you know, 90% of American adults pay some kind of premium on insurance. And it's not just because they're mandated to by law. It's because you can't do things like have a mortgage on a house if it's not insured. You can't do things like, you know, make lease payments on a car if it's not insured. You can't do things like have a family if, you're, if your home isn't insured. If you, if you don't have liability insurance, you can't start a business. And the, 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 these, these ideas are so foundational and they, are, they have been such a part of the development of finance and modern culture and modern business and modern marketplace that it's, it's very interesting to me that there is no one single person who invented insurance. It just evolved, and it evolved out of the church, much like language just evolved out of culture. There was no one who in 1700 said, we're going to define what English is. And by the way, they, they've done that in other languages. Like, you know, if you, if you, if you know French, you know, there's like an academy in Paris that decides what words are French and which words aren't. There is no such thing in English. It just evolves. And that evolutionary process, I think, is very important. Now, is it divine? I, I, you know, I don't know. Like I said, God doesn't whisper in my ears. But I do know that it's a very powerful process that involves the subtle application of a lot of different minds and interests. And that's how the market works. And so I think that property and casualty insurance is a perfect business. And if you look at it, of course, the way that these companies don't have capital costs, because of course you have to pay the premiums up front. And if they do a good job of underwriting, they're going to have access to free money, huge amounts of free money. Berkshire's float, for example, Buffett's company has gone from something like $50 million in 1970 to $160 billion today. It, it's, it boggles my mind that people don't understand that all of Buffett's outperformance is due to his insurance float. All of it. Is he a great stock picker? Absolutely he is. But there's no way he's, he has an annualized 20% return without the insurance float. It was, it's a way of him applying huge amounts of margin and leverage 
to his portfolio for free. And in a way, of course, it's much safer than the margin loan. It's a, you know, a brilliant innovation. But the underlying thing, the property and casualty insurance itself, it's evolved over, over, over you know, hundreds and hundreds of years of human culture and through the actions of lots of free peoples. And that makes it a really good business that I believe every investor should understand first and foremost. I don't think you should be allowed to invest in anything else until you understand property and casualty insurance because it's the basis of capitalism. I'll give you one more example of something that I see that has evolved this way. And again, I can understand why people think this is ridiculous and they don't agree with me. That's fine. Different opinions. But I don't really think that Bitcoin has a single inventor. I think it's something that evolves through cryptography and that had lots of fathers, that it step-by-step step from, I don't know if you were involved in cryptography or in the beginnings of the internet, but you might remember pretty good privacy, <clears throat> PGP. Well, that was the first kind of private public key encryption system that was popularized. And it was the first step towards Bitcoin. And so, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto may be a person or maybe a, a group of people, but that's not really what created Bitcoin. What created Bitcoin was the subtle discoveries and applications of computer science and cryptography over many, 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 many years, which finally yielded Bitcoin. And, and I see that kind of like property and casualty insurance, kind of like the English language. Another good example is the game of chess. It evolved through, through many, many years of, of different minds and, and, and cultures' applications to create a perfect game that's a model of life. I feel the same way about Bitcoin. Um, you know, I, I think that Bitcoin, I would argue, is God's currency. It's, it's, a, it's a fantastic store of value and a type of money that evolved. That It wasn't created by someone or mandated by someone. And if you look at human history, that's how money has always been decided. You know, there wasn't anyone who said, okay, we're going to use seashells. Okay, now we're going to use sheep. Okay, now we're going to use... It was just the, what the market chose. And that choice, uh, you know, where, where governments are smart enough to get out of the way is almost always the right choice. Human, human markets make very, very good decisions and they're very hard to beat. Talk about just how um, the fundamentals in the insurance side have, have changed aside from just the usage of, you know, large data and more efficiency on forecasting and things like that. Um, I have to assume that it's, it's a remarkable industry just from the, um, the usage and availability of data and how that factors into premiums. You know, I, I hired the guy who ran Morgan Stanley's research group on property and casualty insurance for the last decade. So it, I'd much rather him speak to the details of how these companies model risk and how they price it. What I would, how I would answer that question is by not answering it. I think the most important thing that, that a good insurance company does is understand that the model isn't reality. And, and make pricing based on, on what they don't know. And if you, if you follow the insurance companies that are very humble and insist on a wide um, margin of safety in their pricing, you'll always find the better investment. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes sense. Okay, well, so when you, when you think about the space, is it, is it one of those situations where you say uh, better to go broad and consider something that's like a uh, uh, ETF that covers it, or are there some really good um, nuances to to try to do some stock picking? Yeah, that's a great question, um, and I think it's kind of an irony that the industry as a whole will have negative underwriting always. 
That is, this isn't like Wobegon. They, all of the insurance companies cannot be winners. It is, it is at the end of the day, a zero-sum game. If you underwrite all the property and casualty risk in the country, someone has to lose. And so this is a case where I think ETFs are actually a terrible idea. You want to assiduously avoid risk. You have to understand the quality of the underwriting of the companies that you're investing in. That's absolutely the beginning and almost the whole game. From there, it's really good if you can also be with an insurance company that has a wise investment policy. And as an example of that, I would point to W.R. Berkeley. W.R. Berkeley is just such a a fantastic business, and it's been led by a guy, the same guy, since the 1970s when it went public. And that, of course, is Will Berkeley. Uh, Sorry, William Berkeley. And um, he started the business out of his Harvard dorm room. He still owns 20% of the shares. And if you research the company, you're just going to find these guys are absolute assassins for when it comes to aligning interests with the owners. So the underwriters, for example, um, they are not paid any bonuses until all of the policies that they underwrote have expired. And so until the true profitability is known. And then if they are awarded stock, they are not allowed to sell any of that stock or use it in any way for a loan or anything else until after they have retired. So it, it's just, it's a fanatical organization that is designed to make sure that the underwriting is sound. And of course, if you look at their combined ratios over the last 30 years, you're going to find that they virtually every single year make a profit in underwriting. I mean, it's nine, nine years out of 10 at least. And then you combine that with, with William Berkeley's just relentlessly conservative <laughs> investment approach. Over the last decade, as, as, as Berkeley saw the inevitability of inflation and as the Fed manipulated interest rates lower by monetizing huge amounts of debt, what did most companies do? For example, the banks that have failed. What they did was they increased their risk by moving out on the duration curve. So they went and got yield by, by offering, you know, by, by, by investing in longer dated bonds. So stuff that's five or seven years in duration or even longer, 10 years, 15 years in duration. What Berkeley did was the opposite. He realized right away that eventually there would be hell to pay and a huge amount of inflation. So he moved the average duration of their bond portfolio from four to five years all the way down to one to two years. And so when that inflation hit and bond yields spiked, a lot of insurance companies and banks got crushed, but not Berkeley. In fact, they are now making way more money every year because they had such short-term portfolios that the, as rates went up, they were able to roll into the new higher-yielding securities way faster than anybody else. So their results over the last 24 months have just been stellar. And that's that kind of attitude and thinking in every facet of the business, conservative underwriting, conservative compensation structures, and conservative investing, those are the insurance companies that you want to be in. You do not want to be in anybody who's growing their book of business rapidly. You don't want to be invested with anyone who takes risks in their investing portfolio. And you definitely don't want to be investing with the guys who are paying their underwriters before the results of their underwriting are known. Yeah, and it's worth noting that you're, you're viewing this the, the correct way, which is as a business owner, as a long-term investor, not as a FOMO, zero DTE type of, uh, type of mindset. 
I, I don't know how you could look at any of the 10-year charts or the 20-year charts or the 30-year charts of any of the high-quality underwriters and ever dream of trading these stocks. I mean, that's just willfully stupid. <laughs> look, at, look at a chart of Progressive, for example, you know, which is by far the best auto insurer. And tell me, when was a bad time to buy it? And then tell me, when was a good time to sell it? The answer is, if you ever sell it, you're a fucking moron. <laughs> and the same thing with WL, uh, WR, WR Berkeley, the same thing with RLI. I mean, there's a, there are a handful of these incredible businesses. And unfortunately, Buffett keeps buying them, which is, which is really uh, impacting our, our pool of investment choices. I've been, re- I've been recommending Allegheny since, I think, 2012. And he, of course, bought that out maybe 18 months ago. So it is, um, it is a shrinking universe of high-quality underwriters, but they are, in my opinion, the best investments that anyone can make. And like I said, I'm going to at least insist for my children that they learn how to invest in these companies and analyze them before they're allowed to even look at anything else. It's very, very hard to beat a business like these that can reliably compound your capital at 12 to 15% a year forever. Let's talk about how you, how you think about mixing and matching that in a portfolio because you express, you know, bullishness around energy. Uh, obviously, the insurance side, like we just said, but um, how do you even figure out the right balance between those two from a portfolio perspective? Not investment advice, but, you know, there's only so much capital to go around. So how do you figure out what is better to position it to uh, versus not? What I, what I tell people is you should just treat your insurance company portfolio exactly as a replacement for your bonds. So if you go to a financial planner and they say, you know, hey, Mr. Stansberry, you're 50 years old. You should be 50% in bonds. You should be 50% in stocks, which is, you know, you know the rule of 100 that every financial planner is going to give you. If you're 70 years old, you should be 70% in bonds and 30% in stocks, et cetera. My advice is just replace the bond portfolio with, with insurance stocks because all insurance stocks are is, is underwriting plus a portfolio of bonds. So if you're, if you're investing in a, in a conservative bond portfolio, you don't have to pay any fees <laughs> and you're going to get the underwriting for free, which is a great deal. I started my new business a year ago exactly. And our order of business is get some documentaries produced so that we can have some subscribers, do a good job fulfilling the subscribers. And then once we have a steady base of business with renewal income coming in the door, I'll have the budgets to do things like the podcast and other, and other sort of new subscriber outreach that I I haven't had the budget or the time for it just yet, but I do anticipate launching a podcast in, in the next six months by the end of this year. I have never been as bearish on the economy as I am right now. Um, my view is that the way these paper money cycles work is that every, every resulting downdraft has to be met with yet more and more printing. And so if you look at the history of America's original experiment with paper money, it actually began in the late 1600s when the the Massachusetts Bay Colony thought it'd be a great idea to organize a group of 5,000 men and go raid uh, Canada, uh, Montreal in particular. And they were badly defeated and they limped back to Boston at the onset of winter, and the leaders of the colony didn't have any money to pay them because they were going to pay them out of the plunder that they were going to get from raiding Montreal. 
And so they printed up $5,000 in cash. And they said, they solemnly promised that they wouldn't print any more. And they were going to go to England and get the backing, get specie backing from the king. And of course, when they went to England to get the specie backing, he told them to fuck off. <laughs> and they promptly came home and printed 20000 more dollars. And they kept printing and kept printing and kept printing. And by 1720, they had printed something like, you know, the equivalent of $5 million. And they kept having these cycles of deflationary collapse followed by yet another inflationary boom. And when we started monetizing our currency in 2010, I predicted exactly the same thing would happen. That every, every downturn would be met with yet more paper money. And if you look at the cycles of QE and now QT, that's exactly what you're seeing. So the last expansionary policy uh, period we saw during COVID was something like a $7 trillion monetary bonanza. And there, <laughs> I think they're going to be writing scholarly articles on the amount of fraud and the Paycheck Protection Program for the next 50 years. I mean, the, the financial consequences of just that one program were shocking. The, the amount of just ridiculous consumer spending. Every Rolex store in the entire country was emptied within 30 days of the beginning of that program. I wonder why. All of the bubble that you saw in crypto. I wonder why. All the bubble that you saw in real estate in certain places and, in, and you know, all the different... Um, I mean, they had to shut Miami Beach down. I live in Miami Beach. They had to close the causeways during spring one because there were so many people riding around pretending like they were rap stars on on the paycheck, the paycheck protection program money fraud game that were down from Atlanta. I, I mean, it was, just it was just shocking to me. But now that they've closed up all those spigots and you're seeing M2 line for the first time in my lifetime, uh, the resulting um, deflationary collapse is going to absolutely shock people. I just, I, the, the, we have definitely not sent, we have not sent, sent, uh, seen the end of the banking drama. I mean, the, look at, look at the duration of Bank of America's bond portfolio. It's the largest bank in the country. They're, they're, they've got to be underwater because of the losses on the, the bond duration portfolio they have. We haven't, the only way to address all these issues, of course, is going to be printing a lot more money. But first, you're going to have to see a deflationary crisis. And so I, I expect that's what, what's going to happen. And the second half of this year and all throughout next year is just an absolute shocking rise in unemployment, a shocking decline in industrial activity, a shocking decline in real estate prices. The collapse of commercial real estate, of course, is going to turn into just an absolute forest fire of, of value destruction. So I, I'm, I am extremely bearish on the economy, extremely. Um, never more bearish than I've ever been in a career. If you look at the entire so-called wealth gap problem, the whole problem is that wages have decoupled from gains to productivity. And when did that start? 1971 with the advent of paper money. And eventually what you're going to see is that the only thing that the government can do to solve the deflationary collapses is printing more money, which of course makes assets more valuable relative to wages. So every time they do this, the gap between the rich and the poor is going to get worse. And sooner or later, somebody like RFK or somebody like that's going to come along and point and point this out as simply being the, in the facts, the facts of the matter. And then maybe the maybe the public sentiment will change against it. But 
I, all that's unpredict- all that's unknowable. All all you can know right now is that M two is declining, and th- they're still going with QT. And right now, I mean, this is extraordinary. Right now, short term rates, you know, so three month rates on paper, right, are 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 is that's that's higher than the earnings yield on stocks. So I don't know when stocks are going to crash, but they're going to. I really see the recent crackdown on Coinbase and Binance in particular as a signal that the government is actually going to get behind Bitcoin for the first time. I mean, there isn't any way that you'd see all these major firms in New York filing to begin Bitcoin trusts on the, on, because, because the government has cracked down now on the interlopers, right? Maybe this is too cynical, but I think that if you don't believe that the SEC is a completely captured regulatory authority that's designed to benefit Wall Street, you, you, you must not be able to read a newspaper. And in fact, this reminds me so much of when, you, this is probably a, a decade or so older, but remember when that government cracked down and put people in jail for online gambling platforms and then turned around and two years later gave licenses to MGM to do exactly the same thing. So, <laughs> so yeah, let's, let's, let's put Ben Ants and, and um, Coinbase out of business and let's turn the business over to BlackRock because those are our friends. And that's exactly what they're doing. So I, I actually don't see the government is moving to try to, to try to um, <clears throat> um, confiscate Bitcoin. I see the government instead as, um, beginning to extend control over Bitcoin through its captured institutions on Wall Street. I was friendly with the people who promoted the EOS coin. Do you, does anybody remember that one? I, I, I don't know that much about where it is today, but I do know that the people who raised EOS raised $6 billion over the course of a year. <laughs> and they took all that money <laughs> and they gave it all to their, you know, to the EOS founders. And whatever it was that EOS was supposed to do or was supposed to be worth or was supposed to, you, you know, whatever the use case was, I don't know if it ever happened or not. But I do know a whole lot of people that bought brand new airplanes and have had incredible lives since. <laughs> so in my view, I, I, uh, I, I, I believe that Bitcoin is a fantastic technology and I think is a great uh, form of money and a great store of value. And I, I, you'd have to sell me on the use case on any of the other altcoins. But I haven't seen a single altcoin that I would put a penny into. And I've seen a lot of people make a lot of money by ripping other people off with altcoins. So I'm not quite sure how all that gets worked out. But my bet would be painfully for most people. Porter, for those that um, are listening to the podcast version of this conversation, aside from Twitter, are there other places that people can track your, your work and you venture? Well, yeah, I'd love for you guys to go watch my documentary. Um, we, have a, we have a link for that that maybe you could put up somewhere for us. And uh, if not, it's, it's, uh, I think it's www, um, what is it, godsinvestment.com. You can, you can see that I'm, my reputation of being a fearsome marketer is correct. I'm, I'm not even sure of the URL. But I'm sure you can find it if you try. And if not, follow me on Twitter and you can, you can, you can see it there as well. Um, and then I have a website. If you're interested in my newsletter, of course, um, it's porterandcompanyresearch.com. Good place to uh, wrap the Twitter space up. Uh, special thanks to Porter Stansbury and appreciate those that uh, stuck around. Uh, thank you, Porter. Appreciate it. Hey, I really appreciate the time with you today. Thanks for the chat. Thank you, buddy. Cheers.
The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.